0: Well, we're continuing on this morning in our season of Lent, and we're continuing on in our 40 series. Uh, Lent is a, a season that we typically set aside to focus specifically on how God is shaping us. And we practice specific spiritual disciplines because we believe that God wants to meet us in those and grow our faith Through them, the number forty is used uh, quite frequently throughout Scripture, and often refers to a time of seasoning for an individual or a group in the Bible. So, usually, there's an event of some sort that is uh, taking place, and God challenges an individual or or a group by asking them to do something that often seems crazy or insurmountable. And then through their obedience, God does something often miraculous uh, and grows their faith. And I think that really this is our hope and our prayer through this series as well here at All Shores is that God would grow our faith. Uh, not, not just that he would teach us something new, but that, that, he, that through our obedience, our faith would be expanded. One of the defining characteristics of my childhood growing up was that I didn't turn down a debate uh, and nor did I ever certainly not turn down a a challenge. Uh, My mother would often remind me of how stubborn I was and she would tell me that you're just like your grandpa. Now, I I will say that most of the challenges that I took on were quite dumb and there wasn't much divine about them. Um, Like the time I was in high school, I was probably about 16 or 17 years old one particular class that I had, each and every class period, we had a break halfway through that, that period each day. The guys in that class, including myself, we would make our way down to the bathroom uh, together and it would be a different guy's turn every week to, to do something stupid, to take on a, a stupid uh, challenge. Now, let me just throw out the disclaimer here if there are any young people in the room, and I see that there are a few. Uh, this is a really dumb idea, do not do it, don't think about it, it's, it's a bad idea. So I'm, I'm not certainly not telling you this to inspire you to go do it, because it's not a good idea. But what we would do is we would take a paper clip. All right, and we would bend it into three prongs, one prong facing this way, the other two prongs facing that way. Uh, some of you probably already have an idea of maybe where I'm going with this. We would take the the prong of uh, the one prong and, and shove it into the front of the sole of your shoe, the rubber sole of your shoe, and then proceed to take the other two prongs and stick it right into the plug-in in the wall. Now, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and if you wanna know why, why we did this, it's really simple. Uh, we were stupid and we very much enjoyed defying death. Now here's the thing, um, most of the guys would just barely sort of stick the prong into the, into the receptacle in the wall and as soon as they got a small spark, they'd pull it out really fast. We would all laugh and then we would, we would go back to class and we would think it was the funniest thing ever. Uh, well then one day it was my turn. And uh, I had a motto, uh, a life motto at that time and it was uh, go big or go home. Uh, or as I say it today, be the dumbest person in the room or don't be dumb at all. <laughs> I took the paperclip. I bent it into three prongs. I, I proceeded to shove the one prong into the sole of my shoe. And then I jammed it as hard as I could into the light receptacle in the wall. The room lit up like a lightning spark. The, the the lights on the entire floor of the school went out. We all took off in fear and took off back to the classroom. Somehow, some way, I don't know how, but somehow I was able to escape electrocution. Um, don't know how, but I did. And I was reminded of that event every time I walked back into that bathroom because there was a nice black streak protruding out of that receptacle all the way to the ceiling. Uh, you would think that that would be enough for to me to stop doing stupid challenges, but it was not for some reason. <clears throat> now, why do I tell you that story? Because as dumb and as stupid as it was, as was all the other dumb things that I did, uh, I really do believe that God was using my competitive spirit to shape me and to prepare me for moments later in my life where he would challenge me and ask me to enter into something that seemed insurmountable. And that only by faith in God would I succeed. We see this all throughout scripture. God challenges his people by asking them to, excuse me, enter into something impossible. And the goal isn't just to to test them and to sort of weed out the weak. That's not the goal. The goal is actually to challenge them. The goal, he has no expectation of them failing. He has every intention of them succeeding. Risk is the primary way that God grows the faith of his people. The the older and older I get, the more and more I believe this statement. I want to walk us through a couple of different Bible stories this morning of God's people facing insurmountable odds. Of moments where God asks his people to do something that doesn't really make a ton of common sense and yet requires quite a bit of faith. First story is in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. The Israelites are on the cusp of taking over the land of Canaan. And we pick it up in 13, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now, I want to stop right there and point something out. God doesn't say, do this and maybe you'll succeed. God simply reaffirms his promise to them. He tells them they are going to succeed, which I am giving to the Israelites, he says. Now at this point, they should all be well aware that the land of Canaan will be theirs, that God will deliver the Canaanites into the hands of the Israelites. Now, I'm not sure that this is the way that God always works with us. Actually, more often than not, I think that maybe God doesn't necessarily work this way with us. He doesn't necessarily promise us success, at least success in terms of being comfortable, in terms of winning, uh, in terms of having everything we want. But in this case, God is basically treating this like a foregone conclusion, It's already done. Now, it doesn't mean that it will be easy. It doesn't mean that there won't be any sacrifice. It just means that in this case, God has promised the Israelites ultimate victory. But he sends the spies in to Canaan anyway uh, to bring back any and all information they could about the land and its inhabitants. And they do exactly that. And we pick it up in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now, descendants of Anak were associated with people who were feared for their great size and strength. Many of them, we know, survived through the time of the judges and and even into the beginning of the Israel monarchy. Some of them were thought to have lived near the town of Gath. Uh, Now, if that is familiar to you, that is because later on in Scripture, uh, we know that there is a massive giant from the town of of Gath named Goliath. Um, and that is important to remember because that is the connection point between the two, share, the two stories that I'm going to share with you this morning. So 10 of the 12 spies come back and they say the land was awesome. It's fertile. It's amazing. It would be a great place to live. It's flowing with milk and honey. But we don't stand a chance against the people who live there. They will destroy us. <clears throat> now, there's a Hebrew phrase used often to illustrate two contrasting points, and that phrase is epis key. And it translates literally to however on the other hand or just simply but. So we see how, how good it is, but we don't think we can get there. We know that God is leading us to this amazing thing, but we don't trust him to take us there. God is asking me to do this, but I don't think I want to risk what I have to risk to do that. So, so for this morning's purposes, I want us to think of Epis Key as the things that you value most in life, the things uh, that would be a struggle for you to give up if God were to ask you to give them up or risk them. We all all have things in our, our lives that um, might be somewhat pleasurable. They might add some value to our life, but maybe they wouldn't be all that hard to relinquish. Episkey Key represents, at least for this morning, the things that would be the hardest for you to let go of. Now, if you ask my wife, she will tell you that my episkia is sports. And she will also tell you that when I watch my favorite teams play, I won't tell you who those teams are. You can ask me later if you want. Uh, but when I watch them play, she says I turn into a different person. Now, I'm not sure whether to be disturbed by that or to be excited about that. Um, but that's uh, what she says. As a matter of fact, our first date, um, it was a blind date. Um, And I did not want to be there and neither did she. I'll just throw that caveat out there. Um, I ended our day early because there was a game on I wanted to go watch. (laughs) But hey, we're married now and everything worked out uh, great, right? So two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they stand up and they say, hey, no, 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 no. God has given us this land. God has promised us the land of Canaan. We should go in just like he asked us and we should proceed and we should take the land of Canaan because after all, God has already given it to us. So presumably, because they feared that Moses would listen to Joshua and Caleb and lead them into Canaan anyway, the other 10 spies proceeded to go back to the rest of the Israelites and spread a bad report about what they found in hopes that the rest of the Israelites would be on their side. And we pick it up again here in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Why is the Lord bringing us? This is the, the Israelites' response to the spies' report. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Have you ever been in this situation before? Has it ever seemed easier to tell God, I know you're asking me to do this, but I'm not really interested in risking what I have to risk to do that. Truthfully, I'd rather just go back to Egypt I'd rather be comfortable, I'd rather not be stretched. I think that when we risk something that makes us feel comfortable in order to do something that God is asking us to do, that's when we usually tend to see God show up in a powerful way in our lives. Now, it's not that God isn't always there, he is. It's not that that God doesn't always provide, he does. But as long as we aren't risking anything, we can always explain away his blessings and provision. As long as we aren't giving anything of value, it's easy for us to give the credit to something or to someone else. And it's also easy for us to bail and to go a different route. And I want to remind you this morning that risk is the primary way that God grows the faith of his people. And I didn't just make that up either. That's laced all throughout the stories of scripture. If you are not risking something for God, you are well on your way back to Egypt. And if you think that is a better option, let me just remind you that Egypt is a place of bondage. Egypt is a, is a place of false security. And it's a place where you always lack Fulfillment. So here is the question this morning. What is your epist key? What is God asking you to risk? What are you holding back? What are the things, if you had to give them up or risk them, would change potentially the trajectory of your faith journey? <clears throat> Several hundred years after the spies returned from Canaan, the Israelites are now in the land of Canaan and they're faced with another challenge, the Philistines. Throughout the entire reign of of King Saul, the, the Israelites are battling the Philistines and it all comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 17 with a story that most of you are probably familiar with, David and Goliath, The Israelites are camped out on one hill and the uh, Philistines are camped out on the other hill. And out of the Philistine camp comes this big, tall, giant, nine-foot behemoth named Goliath, provoking the Israelites seemingly without any fear. So we are hundreds of years now after the time of the spies and the same fear that is gripping the Israelites, that gripped the Israelites hundreds of years ago, the descendants of Anak, are still gripping the Israelites now. Scripture says that the head of Goliath's spear weighed about 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. The head of his spear. His coat of armor weighed 5,000 shekels. I'll let you do the math there. He had a helmet made of bronze. He had armor on his legs. He had a bronze javelin on the back. This is a big, big Dude, that is this description of, of Goliath's military attire here in this passage is by far the longest description of any military attire in the Old Testament. The author's point here being that uh, that Goliath is invincible by every single human standard. However, just a chapter earlier in, in chapter 16, verse seven of first Samuel, we are warned Against paying too much attention to outward appearance. 16:7 says, "The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think probably, if I was nine feet tall and looked like Goliath, I may not have a lot of fear either. But we move on in chapter 17, verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Then David shows up. <clears throat> he shows up to bring food to his brothers who are in the military, who are in the army battling the Philistines. And he begins asking questions and uh, asking questions about Goliath and, and the battle, um, sort of uh, uh, making some distractions to the to the military, the the Israelite military. And Saul hears about these. And so he sort of uh, asks David to come in and um, calls for him. And so David comes in to see Saul. And this is what David says to Saul in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, meaning himself, will go and fight him. So Saul sort of just kind of laughs this off at first. He says, but you're just a boy. (laughs) You don't have what it takes to go in and to battle Goliath. You don't even stand a chance. In other words, that's a pretty stupid risk you're offering to take. And David's response is, is, I'm a shepherd out here and I'm killing bears and I'm killing lions left and right. And guess what? Goliath is just gonna be like one of these bears and lions when I get done with him. Sounds like he's being a little bit uh, overconfident or arrogant. Uh, But then he ends the conversation like this. In verse 37, he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see, to David, Goliath uh, sort of brought himself down to the level of a wild animal by defying the armies of the living God it was less about confidence in himself it was more about confidence in God David was fully aware that he had zero chance of taking down Goliath without God's help and yet he still chose to battle and Saul's response is simply, uh, go and the Lord be with you, almost to say, you, you just played the trump card. There's nothing I can, I can argue with you about that. So he sends him on his way. Not a single person in the entire Israelite army had the guts to stand up and proclaim that their God was bigger than Goliath. Except David. This small little shepherd boy who wasn't old enough or big enough to even be in the army. And yet he had enough faith in God to risk it all. Nothing about this physical situation gives David any hope. Nothing about this situation tells him that he's going to succeed. The deck is completely stacked against him. Except God. And here's what I wonder. How often do we find ourselves in a similar situation? How often do we look at the battle ahead of us and we stand down because the deck is stacked against us? How often are we faced with a challenge by God and we know that it's risky, even stupid by every human standard. So we play it off as if God isn't actually asking us to jump in. How often do we miss out on an opportunity for God to grow our faith because we see the giant ahead of us instead of the God who has already gone before us? Now, I wanna be clear for a minute about David here. David's life wasn't easy and it wasn't without sacrifice or pain. If you take a few moments to read through some of the Psalms, most of which David wrote, You'll find that throughout David's faith journey, he experienced plenty of pain and suffering, some of which came as a result of the the sin in his life. He wasn't perfect by any measure, but much of the pain and the sacrifice in his life came as a result of his obedience to God. He was a man who followed after God's heart fiercely, even in the face of suffering. There is no question about it obeying God and entering the battle that he's asking you to enter will most likely cost you something. This is the first part of Psalm 69, one of many where David cries out to God. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail looking For my God, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. So even in the midst of obeying God, David suffers. So it's not as if... Obeying God means that life is great and we get everything we want and and there is no pain or no sacrifice. Risking something, even though it's for God, doesn't mean that we won't lose it. That's important to know. If that were the case, it wouldn't really be uh, all that risky. Oftentimes we do lose it or we give it up. And and when we do, we gain an entirely new perspective on life and what God is trying to accomplish through our lives. So God actually takes that, that sacrifice and that pain that we make and he turns it into spiritual maturity and faith. And then I found oftentimes that I didn't even desire that thing that I didn't want to give up so bad in the first place. So really, we kind of have a couple of different paths we can take. We can look at these stories all throughout Scripture of God, challenging his people to step up and enter the battle, and we can respond the way the spies responded with fear and with trepidation and say, surely entering this land, entering this battle will kill us, and then we stand down. And then we can go live a, a, a comfortable, uneventful, unsatisfied life in Egypt. Or we can say, surely God will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, the way that he has delivered me time and time and time again from the Paul of the bear from, and from the Paul of the lion. And then we can say that if God is for me, then who can be against me? Those really are the two options. As I was preparing this week, I couldn't get this picture out of my mind. I'm always comparing my uh, faith journey to epic movies. And, and I, I think I do that because I truly believe that God intends for us to live a life of adventure with him. I think he intends for us to view our faith as a, as a climatic journey of growth. And if you've ever watched epic adventure movies, the main character at the end of the movie is never the same. He is always changing and growing as a result of the events and the things that happen throughout his journey. If you've ever seen The Matrix, that's one of my my favorite epic adventure movies, there is a scene where Neo, the main character, has a choice to make. Morpheus, uh, the leader, offers him One of two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. And he says, if you take the blue pill, you can forget about everything you've seen up to this point. You can go back to uh, your normal, comfortable existence and live a life seemingly of little risk. If you take the red pill, your life will be forever altered. You will enter the battle of the matrix. And from that point on, you will live a life of risk, adventure, and reward, this is how I see our relationship with God. This is, for me at least, a great picture of what God intends for our faith journey to look like. It's always our choice. He won't ever force our hand. And so I just simply this morning want to challenge you. want to challenge you to view your faith like an epic adventure story. Some of us are at the beginning of that journey, some of us are somewhere in the middle of that journey, but regardless of where you are at in the journey, there's always a choice before you, and that is will you bow out and head back to Egypt or will you enter the next leg of the race? Last week, uh, FAD challenged us with our one lives. That's sort of been a a focus um, in this series. And so maybe the next leg of the race for you has to do with your uh, one life. Maybe God is, is challenging you to step up and to step into a deeper relationship with your one life and maybe invest in ways that are uncomfortable, ways that are challenging, and ways that are risky. Or maybe, maybe the next leg of the race for you has, is something completely different. Whatever it might be, it is risky, it is costly, And yet that is the place where God expands your faith and he grows you exponentially. Throughout the 40 series, uh, Julie has uh, put together a prayer and a practice for us to walk through each week. And you can find those on on, uh, allshores.org if you you want to check those out. Uh, But I just want to read the prayer for this week um, to you this morning as you process where God is leading you. God of the cross, your power is hidden, but it quietly overcomes the world. Open my eyes to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. May I walk in the Spirit's power as I live out your vision for the world. May I be reminded that I do not walk alone, that your Spirit is there to lead, guide, and strengthen me. May I have the courage to initiate conversation that your spirit prompts me to have with my one life. Amen. I wanna pray for us this morning as we enter into a time of communion. Father, we know that you have great plans for us. And yet we also know that oftentimes due to fear or the unknown, we tend to squash those plans. Would you give us the courage to step up and to step in to the battle that is before us? Would you grow our faith in a way that we could never imagine on our own? Would you give us eyes to see that you have already gone before us and that the giant that lies ahead of us is no match for you? May we trust in your provision and your grace. In your name, amen.